today we are back in our sermon series in the book of Acts, and we pick up today in our study in Acts chapter 23 from verse 12 to verse 35, looking again at the sequence of events in the life of the Apostle Paul as he is now a prisoner. And the last sermon that was preached in Acts, we stopped at Acts chapter 23 verse 11. If you remember there, Paul had been through three riots already, um, all directed at him, and he had escaped death three times, and now he was sitting in the barracks, and the Lord Jesus came to him in person in verse 11, and said to him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." So the Lord came in the middle of the night to a lonely, forsaken, discouraged, despondent, sad apostle and really cheered his, his heart when he, he needed it most. And you can picture the apostle sitting there and all the world, it seems, is, is plotting against him. And I'm sure he felt a little like David did, King David did, who spent a lot of his life running away from those who wanted to murder him. We, we read earlier in Psalm 56, which was written by King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what he said, and I think this could have been the prayer of the Apostle Paul. In Psalm 56, verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples of God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Maybe you have felt like this before. Maybe you have even prayed a, a similar prayer. And today I hope to, to teach you from our passage in the, books, in the book of Acts, The Providence of God in the Lives of His People. That is the title of my message this morning. Um, the title is Between a Rock and a Hard Place. The Providence of God in the Lives of His People. As believers, we often find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And we face trials, we, we face opposition, especially in our service for the Lord. And for those of you who are at this moment between a, a rock and a hard place, when it seems that you have been forsaken by your, your families, you have been forsaken by your, your friends, you have been even betrayed maybe by your employer, and even your, your prayers are not being answered, we need to remember that the risen Lord is invisible but He is present. Jesus is alive. And Jesus is our risen Lord at work, regardless 
of where we are, regardless of whether we can see him or not. So today we will be reading from verse 12 to verse 35 in Acts chapter 23. Please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word. Acts 23, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to drink nor till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell them. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by the night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as we study your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, already for preparing our hearts through the reading of your word and through prayer and even through song. But we ask today, Lord, that you would help us to apply these truths. Lord, you have preserved this story, this account, for our 
edification, for our admonition, for our training in righteousness. So please, Lord, we pray. Would your spirit train us today? Would he teach us and show us, Lord, how we can trust you more? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. So this last Wednesday, I was at a meeting here in the TEC building. Um, the meeting was held by the Council of Evangelical Churches here in the UAE. And uh, all the different evangelical churches from all the different emirates came together and gave a report. And we had some fellowship afterwards. And Pastor Aubrey from ECC, he invited all the pastors to the 50th anniversary celebration of ECC this November. And he shared with us some of the, the fascinating history of ECC over these 50 years. He told us that in the, in the 70s, ECC met at a different location, which was called uh, the Team Compound, T-E-A-M, the Evangelical Alliance Mission Compound. And this land was given to the missionaries and doctors who were working here in, um, the, in Abu Dhabi uh, by Sheikh Khalifa. And so... Um, the church, as well as other Christian expats, had a place where they could worship, and previously where they didn't. So they built a small building that was used by a number of churches for worship meetings, not here in this location, in another, in another site. But after a number of years, the leaders and pastor of ECC was approached by the Abu Dhabi police, and they made inquiries about this place of worship, and they asked them who had given them permission to meet here in the, in, to meet in the building where they were. And they told the police that Sheikh Khalifa had given them permission, and Sheikh Khalifa had given them the land. And the police then asked for proof. The police then asked for any documents. And of course, they didn't have any documents because it was all a verbal agreement, and there was nothing that they could show the police. So the police then told ECC um, and all the other churches that were on the compound that they had 30 days they, they had to vacate the premises because they were there illegally. And of course the, the church and all the evangelical community and other churches that were here were, were at, at ends. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to, where to go. But then after three weeks had elapsed, the elders of ECC got a phone call from one of their members who was a nurse at the Corniche Hospital. And he told them, or, the, or she, she told them, that she had just delivered a baby of the chief of staff of Sheikh Khalifa. So the, the pastor and the elders, they quickly rushed to the Corniche Hospital to meet with the, the chief of staff to discuss with him this problem. And he was kind enough to meet with them and hear the problem that ECC was facing. And he told them that he would uh, speak directly to Sheikh Khalifa about this issue. But after a few days, they, they got a response from Sheikh Khalifa's office that they no longer needed to vacate the compound. And on top of that, the Sheikh was going to give them another plot of land that was, that was bigger and more suitable for their needs. And that is the land where we are standing and sitting today. This is the land where the Evangelical Church compound is now situated. 
And I thought of that story and I thought of the passage here that we are looking at this morning. And I thought of God's providence. Even though we don't see God's hand often at work, we need to trust His heart. And even though we can't see God's hand working, it doesn't mean it is not working. And God in His providence, He, he orders the, the circumstances and he, he moves all the, the scenes and the characters on the stage to accomplish His will. And today we're going to be looking at the providence of God in the lives of His people. And my first point this morning is the plot that we see in verse 12 to verse 15. Look there in your Bibles at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So in these verses, we see the religious Jews forming another plot. This is not their first plot. This is another plot to murder the Apostle Paul. And some conspirators came up with the plan to bring Paul once more down to the council, saying that the council wanted to, to get more information from him concerning whether he was guilty or, or innocent. And while he was being taken down, they would capture Paul en route, and there they would kill him. And this plot was, was better than their last attempts, much more devious, and they thought foolproof than anything else that the Jews had tried previously. But they forgot one important factor. The Lord God Himself was behind the scenes protecting Paul by ordering some unusual circumstances. And I want you to notice something else here in our passage. There is nothing, the, the Lord's name is not mentioned in any of these verses. God is not mentioned in any of these verses. Nothing about the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Nothing about salvation is mentioned. Nothing about redemption is mentioned. Nothing about the Messiah. Nothing even about miracles is mentioned here. But what we do see clearly here is the doctrine of the providence of God. We see clearly here the providence of God. And providence is where God gets His will done by changing the natural, not by causing, um, by using the natural circumstances to accomplish what He, he wants to. So God had told Paul in verse 11, remember, to take courage. Remember, he was in the barracks. And the Lord appeared to him and said, take courage. And Paul was going to learn firsthand how to do this, how to trust the sovereignty of God. And God in his providence was moving all the pieces together, all the players and all the scenes together on this stage to accomplish his perfect will. God has declared His sovereign purpose to Paul. We saw in verse 11 that He wanted him to, to be a witness for him in Rome. And we will see that unfolding in the verses ahead. God will have His perfect will done. We see in verse 16 to 22 the plot that is discovered. 
Look at verse 16 in your Bibles. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. So this is the only mention in the whole Bible of Paul's nephew, or even of Paul's sister for, for that matter. And Paul's nephew hears, he overhears the, the talk of this plot to ambush and, and kill Paul. And here we begin to see the, the wheels of providence move as the plot is secondly found out. But I want you to try and imagine how God worked these circumstances to have this, this little boy hanging around the conspirators to get the right message and then to have the presence of mind to go and to warn his, his uncle. And Paul then asks the, the Roman commander to listen to what his nephew has to say. And the lad tells the commander his story. Look at verse 21. He, this is the little boy speaking to the commander. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. Who have been bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So here is a little child who's really commanding the Roman commander what he should do. And notice how, how, how compassionate the, the Roman commander is. He takes this little boy's hand and he speaks to him in private. But I hope you see how, how God is orchestrating all of this. He tells the commander, don't be persuaded. There is an ambush of, of 40 men who are devoting themselves to destroy Paul. They're not going to eat. They're not going to drink till they have done what they have determined themselves to do. And they are ready. But the whole thing really depends on you, commander, for you to deliver the prisoner. So the commander finds out about the plot. But notice again, and I want I want you to understand this today. You know, there's no such thing as, as luck. Can I say that clearly? You go look in the Bible, you will not find the word luck in the whole Bible. There is no such thing as coincidence in this life. You know, if we do live with that type of mindset, if we live in a world of, of random chance, it's a scary place to be, isn't it? I remember as a child living in that type of a world, never wanting to cross the path of a, of a black cat or never wanting to walk under a ladder or never wanting to, to break a mirror just in case I would get all of these, these, this bad luck upon myself. It was a scary place to live. It was a scary place to live. And you never know what bad things might, might happen to you. You never know what bad things will, will happen to your, your loved ones. And all you can do is just hope for, for good luck. That's all you can do, is hope for good luck. Whenever you get a lucky coin, throw it into a, into a wishing well and just hope that your luck will change. But God is not a God of luck. And Christians don't need to, to rub the, the Buddha's stomach or, or, or rub a, a rabbit's white foot. Or we don't have to worry about walking under a ladder or not to avoid this bad luck. God is not a God of chance. He is sovereign. And He is in control of this universe. 
We need to learn to trust Him to protect us and to provide for us and to work out His sovereign plan for our lives, even in difficult times, even in trying times. You know, on Wednesday, I received this email from uh, Jeremy Rinney. Uh, many of you know Jeremy. He came to visit us at the zoo with his family. Jeremy was the previous pastor at um, ECC, Evangelical Community Church. He's now pastoring in Florida. And if you've been following the news, I'm sure you've seen the, the hurricanes that have swept through uh, parts of Florida. But this is his email. He says, Sanibel Island, that's where, where he is and the church is. He says, Sanibel Island and Fort Mayer sustained a direct hit from Hurricane Ian yesterday. It was almost a Category 5 hurricane when it made landfall. And the island and parts of Fort Mayer's have suffered catastrophic damage. He says, reports are spotty, but we are hearing news of 10 to 15 plus of storm surge. And there will likely be fatalities. And many people stayed on the island, believe it or not. And we had four staff members living on island, including myself, who are now homeless. We are awaiting news on homes and the church campus but mentally preparing ourselves for a long exile from Sanibel Island. Assuming that we are off Sanibel for the foreseeable future, we will be looking for housing for homeless staff and island residents in the Fort Myers area, as well as a location to assemble for worship. But then he says, please keep us in your prayers. God has given me such peace and calm right now to lead and shepherd a traumatized, Diaspora Church in exile. He says it's a frowning providence for sure. But we know that in all his providential ways, the Lord will be glorified and he will do good to his elect. Pray for the Lord to refine and comfort this flock, to meet the practical needs and for us to have many opportunities to glorify him and bear witness to the gospel to this community. Pray for Jeremy. Pray for their church. And pray for all the other believers who were affected by the hurricane. As Jeremy said, this is an opportunity for them to be a witness to a broken world. And thank the Lord that Jeremy can see the providence of God in, in all of this. But pray that even in this trying time that they will learn through this catastrophe that God is indeed sovereign. Pray that they will learn to trust Him to protect them, to provide for them, and to work out His sovereign plan for their lives, even in difficult times. This leads to my third point. We see the plot prevented in verse 23 to verse 30. We see the plot prevented. Look at verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is where it's getting really exciting, the story. I can see your excitement. <laughs> I can feel it. Claudius Lysias he himself is feeling the, the pressure of the Roman justice, and he, he doesn't want to have 
on his hands, the responsibility for this assassination of a Roman citizen, which would cost him his job and probably his life. And he doesn't want to get into a hassle even with the, the Jewish people because of the political pot that is, that is boiling there in Jerusalem. And he knows that he has a very important man in his hands here. And there wouldn't be such a hassle going on if he wasn't important. And, and he's determined here to outsmart the, the terrorists, to outsmart the assassins. He knows the only thing to do is to get this guy out of town and into the hands of the governor, the higher authority. And God then places it upon the Roman commander's heart to send Paul with an armored guard. Did you notice that? An armored guard, not of two soldiers, 470 soldiers. 200 of those soldiers were spearmen. They had the, the best weapons that they had at the time. Okay, And these were the soldiers who were escorting Paul away from the city to a safe place where Paul could be tried for, for the charges that were up against him um, there by Felix, who was the, the Roman governor. So all the army is grouped to get him out of town, and the, the passage tells us they get ready to do it at 9 p.m. 9 p.m. is the third hour of the night, verse 23 tells us. So 9 o'clock at night, they, they move him under the cover of darkness, out of the city. And that's how he left Jerusalem. That's how he left Jerusalem. And Paul must have been amazed at all of the fuss going on just for him. Remember verse 11, God had appeared to him and told him, Paul, don't be afraid. Take courage. I'm still going to use you, but not here in Jerusalem. I'm going to use you in Rome. So Paul knew that this was God's plan. And here we see God's plan unfolding. He sees God's plan unfolding. Now I want you to turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 8. I don't think Paul enjoyed any of this. I'm sure there was fear. I'm sure there was a lot of discomfort, a lot of apprehension. But yet Paul understood a little bit about the sovereignty of God. And he was learning about the providence of God here. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Now, now remember, who wrote Romans? Paul, okay? Romans chapter 8. These are the words that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Even this evil event to murder Paul was in God's providence. In Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he says, God has a purpose in all that He does in the world, and He providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish His purposes. All things, including the bad things, for His purpose. And I think this definition is consistent with, with Scripture. Turn, turn, if you can, to Daniel chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 4 says basically the same thing here that Wayne Grudem says. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. 
And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's providence in effect, taking place in the life of Paul, even in a trying situation. God is using this difficult situation to bring about his perfect will. And none can stay his hand. And none can say to him, what have you done? The Lord is in control. Folks, the Lord is either, he is either in control of all or he's not in control at all, right? Can't be, can't be in between here. And Daniel tells us that the Lord is not standing there wringing his hands, wondering if he has made a mistake. He is in control. My last point we see in verse 31 to verse 33. We see God's providential protection. God's providential protection. Look at verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Verse 32. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea... And delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So what do you think was going on in Paul's mind now as it becomes apparent that the trial is going to happen? The trial is going to take place. And so far, all we've had, you understand, are pre-trials. There hasn't been a a real trial. It's all pre-trials that have taken place. And now the trial is actually going to happen. But remember, according to Roman law, his accusers had to be present. They had to be in front of him and face him to give the, uh, the accusation. But his accusers are still in Jerusalem. His accusers are still in Jerusalem. And it will take them at least five days to, to get to where he is. And we'll hear more about that in a couple of weeks' time. But Paul is in the fortress now in Caesarea. He is safe. He has been put up in this actual palace. But I wonder what was going on in Paul's mind. Just over a week before he had been in Caesarea, he was a free man. He had been in the same place, not not in this fortress. He was a free man. Remember, he had met with the church in Caesarea. But now there's no mention of the church in our passage. And I wonder what the folks in the church of Caesarea were were thinking. I'm pretty sure that some of them were saying, well, I knew it was a bad idea for Paul to go to Jerusalem. He should never have been there to Jerusalem. I wonder if they took him parcels of, of food. Maybe they did. I'm pretty sure that they were that they were praying for him. But yet Paul is is in a cell in Caesarea. He's uncertain of his future. He's got time on his hands, time to think about all these things. But he knows that God is faithful. He knows that for sure. And he's clinging on to that. Let me remind you, just just a few hours before, in verse 11, Jesus had met with him. In fact, two days before. And he had said to him that he was going to go to Rome. And right in the morning now, he's carrying out this fulfillment. Now, Paul is only 60 miles 
closer to the, to the promised destination than he was before. And God is confirming this promise in his heart that he is faithful to perform his will, not Paul's will, but God's will. Like I said, even though this passage doesn't mention God's name, it teaches us that God is faithful. He keeps his word. Do you believe that, folks? Do you believe that? Now, Peter said this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Do you believe that? Imagine, what, imagine what's going on in Paul's mind. It's been a traumatic week in his life. Imagine him thinking about the events of the last few days and of this last week. Just a short while ago, Paul had written to the church in Rome, and, and the verse I just mentioned, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.28 and we, know what, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. I wonder if he was reciting this verse to himself. I'm pretty sure this is one of the verses that he had memorized. And he was reminding himself of God's faithfulness. Of God's, of God's concern for him. Of God's love for him. Of God's care for him. Now I, I imagine, and I'm just speculating here. There's, there's no proof for this. I'm just imagining. I imagine for the Apostle Paul, there's one thought that keeps spinning through his mind as he tries to, as he tries to sleep and as, as he tries to prepare himself for the trial that will take place in five days. That God is in charge. He's reminding himself that, that God is in control. In every detail, every circumstance, every set of contingencies, Big things, small things, little things. God is working His plan slowly but surely. God is fulfilling His purpose. And Paul can't see the big picture. Paul is just part of this little picture or this puzzle that is being put together. But he's reminding himself of the character of God. That God is faithful. And He is not slack concerning His promises. But let me conclude with a psalm that I started with this morning. Turn with me to Psalm 56. We read it earlier. We've read it twice now. But I want you to see how, how relevant this is to all of us who face similar circumstances when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. In Psalm 56, verse 3, this could be any of our prayer. But David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their th thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Interesting phrase there about those tears in the bottle. You know, it was a custom in the, in the East when people mourned at a funeral. 
it was a custom to, to catch these tears and put them in a bottle and then give these tears to the, the person that they mourned for as a, as a token of their affection, as a token of their love. And David says to the Lord, Catch my tears, God. Catch them as a reminder. And then he asks him, Are they not in your book? Are not my troubles in your plan? Do you not know about them? Of course he does. And he goes on to answer the question that he's asking himself. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Underline that, folks. Underline that. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David understood about the providence of God. Paul understood about the providence of God. And here in this wonderful psalm, David is saying, God, you'll spare my life. I know you will. If it is your will, I have complete confidence in you, God. And if you don't choose to spare my life, my life is in your hands. I trust you. You won't waste it. You will use it for your purpose. And Christian, maybe you find yourself between a rock and a hard place this morning. Maybe you have been forsaken by your family and your friends. Maybe you have felt that even your prayers are, are not being answered. And remember that God knows about your troubles. And He is working all things together for good. Not some things. He is working all things together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. When we can't see God's hand at work, we need to trust His heart. And even though we can't see God's hand working, doesn't mean it isn't there. And God in His providence... He orders these circumstances and he moves all of these scenes and, and all of these characters on, on his stage to accomplish his will. Jesus is alive. Jesus, our risen Lord, is at work regardless of where we are. So the question I have for you this morning, are you called according to his purpose? Do you have a desire to fulfill God's purpose in your life? Do you know God's love for you? Have you embraced Him as your sovereign King? If you haven't, perhaps you, you believe this lie that, that God is not in control of all things. That He is not actually sovereign. But if He is not sovereign, think about this, unbeliever. If God is not sovereign then God is not God. And if your free will can trump divine providence, then you are God. Then you are your own God, isn't it? And that's not a good place to be. Because then all you have is to try and live your life, live your life 
hoping for good luck. But the sovereign God who created this world is not a God of luck. He's not a God of chance. He is sovereign. He is in control of this universe. And He works all things, not some things. He works all things together for good for those who, who love Him. Put your faith in Jesus today. He is sovereign and He loves those that are called according to His purpose. Call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Father, we do thank You for Your passage this morning in Your Word that has taught us about Your providence. We pray that You will continue to help us apply these truths. I pray that the Spirit, Lord, would help us see, even this week, events in our life that take place, not because of our doing, but because you are quietly behind the scenes working all things for your good purposes. Lord, I pray, Lord, that if there are folks here resisting this, this biblical teaching today, Lord, that you would break their hearts today. I pray for that, Lord. None, nothing less and nothing more that you would break their hearts today, that they would take a step off the throne of their own lives and that they would bow the knee to you the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we pray that you would help us as believers who have already put our faith and our trust in you to trust you more, to be more dependent on you in every area of our lives, knowing, Lord, that you are a good, good Father who loves his children and takes care of them, allows us to go through hardships, allows us to go through difficulties, but for a reason, Lord, to refine us, and to make us more like your son, that we can be a better reflection of your, your goodness and grace to the world around us. And we think of the believers today, even in Sanibel Island, Pastor Jeremy's church, who don't have a place to, to meet today. But yet, Lord, you have allowed that hurricane to destroy their church, to destroy homes there, Lord. But Lord, I have no doubt that you will work a good thing through this. And you will be glorified through the saints there who show the world around them, the world that is scratching their head, looking at the devastation, they will show the world around them that you are indeed a good God, that you are indeed a gracious God, worthy of our praise. Help us to praise you, Lord, in the difficult times, trusting you that you love us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.